Welcome to the Smiling at the Future podcast. My name is Christy Rose, and this is my pursuit to glean practical wisdom on femininity, homemaking, finances, relationships, and singleness from the God-fearing men and women in my life. Hope you enjoy this journey with me as we learn to smile at the future. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Carlin Wendler, who is an ER doctor, a medical missionary to the country of Burundi, Africa, and he also happens to be my brother-in-law. In this discussion, we move through the concentric circles with how to help strangers, loved ones, and even ourselves when confronted with a medical emergency or hospital stay. This information is not something you may interact with on a daily basis, but you'll be thankful you know it when you need it. Carlin is one of the smartest men that I know, and he also loves the Lord deeply. So that makes for a perfect combination to blend the practical application with a theological foundation. So here is my conversation with Carlin Wendler. Welcome aboard, Carlin. Would you be so kind as to introduce yourself to the listeners today? And I would love it if you would also include the abbreviated version of how you met my sister, Michelle. Sure thing. Thanks, Christy, for having me on to your podcast and for the opportunity to talk about things that are very meaningful to me, especially meeting your sister and marrying her. My name is Carlin Wendler. I'm an emergency physician. I currently work as the chief medical officer of Kibuye Hope Hospital in Burundi in East Central Africa. I am an assistant professor there for emergency medicine at Hope Africa University, also in Burundi, and I'm voluntary faculty at Keck USC here in Southern California, where I did my residency many moons ago. I'm also privileged to provide executive leadership to the African Medical Education Fund, which my brother and I co-founded in 2015 to try to help our African students get scholarships and salary subsidies so that they can continue the work after we go home. I grew up in Southern California. I went to Grace Community Church since before I was born, became a member there at age 18, and that's my sending church, or our sending church, I should say. Uh, as far as uh, education, I went to UC San Diego, and I studied molecular biology and history there. And then I went to the University of Michigan, current national champions in football, and uh, for medical school. And then, like I said, I did residency at LA County, now LA General, and USC emergency medicine residency, and deployed to France in 2012, and then Burundi in 2013, because our team had to learn French. I'm there with a group of missionaries, a lot of doctors, some engineers, and a bunch of teachers from Surge Global, which is our sending agency uh, based out of Jenkintown outside of Philadelphia. I met your sister in 2014 when she was playing piano for a missionary conference put on by our church, Grace Community. And yeah, it's a longer story, but there was definitely a lot of attention to this, uh, the singleness of this one male missionary. And so there was a lot of um there's a lot of attention around that, which is fine. It's whatever. I think your audience probably knows that sometimes being single generates its own dynamics. And so I was pleased that I got to get to know your sister kind of on my own initiative. She was playing the piano the whole conference and I noticed her and I was like, okay, maybe I'll reach out to her because I, I knew your brother Nate from before and had been very impressed with your family and thought that everyone was pretty cool and godly. 
Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll reach out to her on Facebook or email or something to start a conversation while I'm back just for these, like, I think I was back for 10 weeks total. And I'd already used three of them uh, before the conference. So I didn't expect that I was going to be able to really make a ton of progress in just two months back in the States. But this, I think it was the last session they did. Her band convinced her to sing and perform a song that she had written and composed. And it was really, it was really touching. It was very beautiful about trusting God in the hard places. And I was like, oh, well, I needed, now I need to talk to that girl like today. And by God's grace, she had put her Bible and notebook down in the seat that just happened to be behind me. I did not know this. This was not planned. It was just haphazard in God's sovereignty. So after the session was over, I turned around and started talking to her, which I didn't know at the time was fortuitous because the band and the like the the short-term missions team that was serving the missionaries for that conference, they were told to like not initiate conversation with the missionaries because they uh, they wanted to leave this time protected for us to talk with each other. So anyways, I didn't know that I was going to have to be the one to initiate, but that was all right. And we got to talk about music and life and stuff. And in the course of that conversation, I was suggesting or, or recommending certain bands and websites to share music and she wasn't able to get it on her phone. And so I just, you know, was like, Hey, would you like me to text you the name of that band or the, that website? I can't remember exactly what it was. And she's like, Oh yeah, sure. Cause I'm not getting it right now on my phone. And I'm like, okay, like what's your phone number? So that's how I got her number. I think I was going backpacking right after that. So we didn't end up getting together right immediately, but yeah, we went on a date and it was awesome. So I asked for another date and then one thing led to another. And before I left back for Burundi, I we had to sit down and ask kind of like, if we're going to be serious about this, we're probably going to need to have you visit Burundi. You should bring your brother or maybe your dad. And so we kind of like sketched out, like if this is going to go forward, how does this need to play out? So yeah, in January of 2015, she and Nate came and... She loved it. We took a little bit of time after that to think and pray and fast and seek the Lord's guidance. And then on, I think it was actually the day after Valentine's Day, 2015, I called her from Burundi and we had a chat and I told her that I'd be coming back at some point in the next uh, several weeks to America to, to propose to her. And so, yeah, so that's kind of how we got to that point. I did get to surprise her because I didn't give her the exact date when I'd be getting back. But your parents met me at the airport and um, we went and, you know, after, I don't know, 30 hours of travel, I was sat at a Baja Fresh with your mom and dad. And I talked about my intentions with your sister and they gave their permission and blessing. And then the next day I surprised her at her home with roses and a ring and proposed on Mission Peak. And she said, yes. And that set us on a, a lifelong adventure of service in Burundi, in East Central Africa. And we've been, we've lived on three different continents because we were first year in the States, then the second year of marriage, we were in France so that she could learn French and I could learn more French. And then we've been off and on in Burundi since then. So eight and a half years of marriage later, we've got two kids. Gabrielle is four and a half and Isaiah is two and a half. And they are just lovely, cute, wonderful little joys in our lives. So yeah, I hope that's a brief, but it's kind of our story. Well, and I've enjoyed having a front row seat to your whole story. And Carlin, you know that 
You are the answer to our prayers that we prayed for many, many years for my sister, waiting for just the right man to come on the scene. And right before you entered the picture, I remember my sister telling me, it's like a barren wasteland. Like there's no godly men in the picture. There's no one. I think she was 35 at that point. And lo and behold, God brought you the right time and you exceeded all of our expectations. And it's been really sweet to see how well fitted and suited you both are for each other and seeing how you serve together and raise your kids together and the learning and growing process. But anyways, I've just so enjoyed being even a small part of watching all of that unfold. And you guys even graciously allowed me to come and stay with you all when you were in France in language school. And that was a highlight in my life, being able to go and live in your extra bedroom for two months and be a part of that uh, journey with you. So you are a very, very smart man. You know about everything, but today's topic in the medical sphere is definitely your wheelhouse. So I'm excited to hear your wisdom and your life experience applied to these questions. And this topic is not something that people will need every single day, but when you need it, you'll be thankful that you know it. So it's not just for uh, people in the medical world. This is something that can apply to all of us. How do we navigate these situations that come up in life with wisdom? So I want to start out first by asking the question, what should someone do if they witness an emergency in everyday life? If they see someone collapse in front of them in a store or they see an accident before emergency services arrive on the scene. What is a Christian's responsibility to care as a lay person? And then kind of a follow-up question to that. Most of the listeners are single women. So is it safe for us to just stop and try to help in these situations? Should we be concerned about our own safety? I know it's a big question, but would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thank you for that, Christy. I think for those gracious words, it was definitely a highlight of our time in France to have you staying with us as well. And um, your sister is definitely next to salvation, the greatest grace in my life. Okay, so what you're talking about is kind of your Good Samaritan situation, right? Some some kind of emergency or medical need arises unexpectedly or crosses your path somehow. What is the Christian's responsibility? And then let's talk about that in the context of single women. So the, I think the, in the biggest picture, if I could give just kind of an overview, the, the Christian ethic is pretty clear. And I think that, you know, we even call this the good Samaritan situation, right? Like the, the parable of the good Samaritan and the commandment to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is huge. And it's almost a crushing burden, right? Cause it means that we got to treat everybody the way that we would ideally like to be treated ourselves. So if I have a heart attack or I go down, I hope that someone will take care of me. If my child gets injured, I hope that someone will come and help us to take care of them. So it it kind of puts this burden on you and you feel like, okay, well then I need to like, I don't know how that works. Like I need to always be actively engaged in solving all of the emergencies and critical needs in front of me. And, and that's good. And I think we should feel that. I want to temper it just a little bit with what happens in John chapter five, when Jesus walks into the, the Greco-Roman Judean equivalent of a super busy hospital at the pool of Bethesda, and he heals one person 
and then walks out. And the, the text is very clear that they were more than just that one sick person there at the, at the pools of Bethesda. So at least some medical needs do not get resolved in God's timing immediately. And you can argue those are chronic medical conditions and we're talking about emergencies. But I, I think what I want to say is that it is, we shouldn't feel crushed by the need. I think we should feel motivated to be in step with the spirit. So if you're if you're prayed up and you're walking in step with the Lord, I think that you can you can rely on his guidance in moments where you're going to be at you know that equipoise, right? So it's say it's late at night and you're walking to your car and you have to go a block because you had to park far away from your friend or family member who lives in a not so nice part of town and there's someone strung out on the ground like in an alley are you are you going to go into that situation and assess this person and figure out what kind of help they need or are you going to like kind of glance at them make sure that they're breathing and then continue on like it's a little bit i I think i want people to feel that they don't have you don't have to put yourself at substantially elevated risk in in biomedical ethics we talk about scene safety is the first thing so even before you look after the patient, you're looking at, are there downed power lines somewhere? Is there fuel leaking out of the car onto the roadway that could ignite? Like we don't want to add more victims to the equation. So I don't want to you know, encourage people to take unnecessary risks. But when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan did put himself at some risk, right? Like there were there were robbers that were willing to beat up people and leave them for dead on that Jericho road. And he stops and dismounts his donkey and spends time to clean the wounds and put the man on the donkey so they're going to go slower than they otherwise would. He pays out of his own pocket. It does cost us something to love. That's the balance that we're trying to that we're trying to take. So with that being said, as the big picture, are there like specific things that we can do to help in those situations? So obviously, if you're living in America, you're in a relatively high resource context where you can dial 911 and call for help to come help somebody and hopefully they'll get there quickly. So this is especially true. You said, you know, you, you witness a car accident and there's no emergency medical services on scene yet or emergency services. So what do you do? Certainly I have called 911 from my car on the freeway multiple times. Like I I can't stop because I'm in, you know, the number two lane or something like this, but I see there's a a person wandering around next to the freeway. Like that person's at substantially elevated risk of getting hit by a car because they're crazy trying to cross a freeway or not in their right mind. And someone needs to assess that, but I can't, it's not me because I just, you know, went by at 65 miles per hour. I've called 911 on accidents where I don't see anybody else there yet. And often, I mean, I think dialing 911 for those of us who have never done it, it feels very intimidating and like it's the kind of thing that you should never do, but unless you're personally having an emergency or needing police presence. But the the reality is you're going to get connected to a dispatcher. And if you say there's a car accident that I just saw on the corner of, you know, Main Street and First, and uh, it looks like there's two cars, you know, I was on the other side of the, the road. Um, I haven't assessed anything else yet. They'll often tell you like, Thank you. We're already aware of this accident. If you can provide, you know, 
if you're emergency medical services, you are welcome to go act within your scope of practice. But we have people on the way already, right? It'll it'll often be a less than one minute phone call for you if you're just calling in to report something. If you are calling to report something like that, you're able to get a little bit more involved in. Let's say you're, you know, you're at the at the pool and someone falls in and drowns, and you know CPR or rescue breathing, call 911 and then you'll stay on the line with them as they kind of coach you through what you should be doing next. So that's kind of the first the first level is get help, right? You calling 911 is a way to to marshal more resources into the equation. So don't fear to do that. I would also say that there's a few things that you can do that are going to lower your barrier to being able to offer that kind of care. So like let's say you are on surface streets and there's a car accident in front of you and everything stops, right? And a crowd starts to form. You're not going anywhere because the cars are are going to be blocking traffic or whatever. If you have gloves in your glove box, like vinyl or nitrile gloves in your glove box, and you know how to stabilize someone's C-spine because you did a basic first aid course with the Red Cross somewhere, and you put on your gloves and you go over there and you help to stabilize someone's neck while they're lying on the ground after they get out of the car or whatnot, like you're doing a service. It doesn't usually cost you too much, but it's a little bit of time. But having those gloves is going to like, it's not going to be so icky. Like, ooh, do I need to like touch blood with my hands and get involved? I know that there, I, one of my one of my friends or acquaintances who lives in New York um, as a single woman, she carries the naloxone nasal spray in her purse because apparently on her footpath commute, there's enough people who have overdosed on fentanyl that she's concerned and if she has this, she can just give it, right? Like she, there's things you can do to prepare. I would say, you know, gloves and Narcan, leaving yourself some margin when you need to drive somewhere so that you're not like headed to that crucial job interview, blazing down the freeways or the the roads to get there right in the nick of time. Like that just lowers the barrier to being able to get involved and to to be helpful. So I would say never do anything that's outside of your training. Like if you don't, if you're a paramedic, then there's a lot of things that you can do while waiting for the the on-call paramedics to get there. If you're a lay person, maybe you know CPR, hands-only CPR because you did a training or you know how to hold C-spine or you know how to hold pressure on a bleeding wound. Like these are things that you can do that will help that don't require a medical degree or a nursing degree. But yeah, within your scope of practice, like what you're trained to do, you'll be covered if you do it in good, you know, in good faith that you're trying to help somebody. And the legal, because I think we also sometimes are like, oh, you know, am I going to get in? Are they going to sue me if they have a bad outcome? You're pretty protected in America and in, in it varies a little bit state by state. But in the U.S., you're pretty well protected, uh, even if you're on an airplane, that if you're doing what you're trained to do and you're doing it to the best of your ability to help somebody, even if there's a bad outcome, you're not going to be considered liable. So feel free to help. Yeah. I don't know where I heard this. Maybe it wasn't a CPR class, but what is the the device where if you ever have to do mouth to mouth, it's, you know, protects you. What's that thing called? There are one way valves in masks that you can use. So like if you're in a setting where there's an automated external defibrillator, 
often those are the ones that are going to shock your heart if you need to be shocked. Um, often in those, there's a mask. I used to carry one that's like a little fold-up version, just thin plastic, but it has a one-way valve in it. So that if you do have to do mouth to mouth, no air is going to come back from that situation into your mouth. And it's a little plastic that, you know, it's sterile plastic that you put in between you and the patient. That's something there's, they make them little keychains. Um, it's like a little folded up thing. So I carried one of those with me for years. I never had to use it, but the AED often has a, a similar thing. That's a little bit more robust in the sort of in the packet with the AED. And those ones, again, are going to walk like any person can, it's going to give you the instructions, put the patches on, and there's pictures on the patches of where you put them on the person's chest. And then it's going to tell you, you know, plug it in and you plug it in. It's going to say, we're analyzing the rhythm. And then it's going to say, we need to give a shock. So, you know, move everybody away from the patient so they're not touching them and then push this button. And those are the good ones, right? If somebody goes into cardiac arrest and they need to be shocked, they have a good chance. If they get that shock quickly, they have a good chance of coming back. Like you are going to dramatically improve their chances of survival if you can do that. So yeah, if, if anyone, if any listener is interested, I would strongly recommend there's first aid and um, basic life support training courses from the Red Cross all the time. Many hospitals put these on on a regular basis. There's places you can give yourself just a little bit more training. And it's um, it's as valuable to reduce your anxiety around the situations if you have, you know, because it is it is a fearful thing. Uh, it's as useful to reduce your anxiety as it is to give you technical skills of what to do in those situations. So just running through it a few times in a practice seminar will help you feel better about it if you ever have to do it. Good point. And you might need a refresher course. I know I took CPR a long time ago, but, you know, I, I'll need to remember how many beats per minute and all of that. So it's good to to refresh on that. I'm sure YouTube videos too. If, you, if you've if you been through the training already and you just need to refresh some of the information, you could probably find that online. Yeah, the American, sorry, heart, heart.org, the American Heart Association. I think that their refresher courses are are almost all online. Like you can do the the written part online and then you can do, I think it's almost like a, it's a Zoom, it's like a Zoom call to talk with somebody through what you're going to do. And you can uh, maybe demonstrate some skills like doing CPR on a pillow in your, in your house kind of thing for them to know that you remember what you learned. So it's easy. The barriers are low. One thing that you brought out, Carlin, that I thought was really good is you said, don't be crushed by the need, but be led by the spirit. And you experience that in Burundi because you are confronted with overwhelming need all the time. Burundi is considered a third world country, the, one of the poorest countries in the world. And so you could be overwhelmed by wanting to help in all situations. But I liked how you also brought out Jesus' example too of just healing one person, doing what you can, praying. And if you feel convicted in, in a certain situation of, I really should be helping that person, then like you said, being prepared and being willing to do that, even though it might not be super convenient and it might set you behind in your schedule or all of those uh, other things in your life, seeing a need and being willing to meet it is so important. So let's say it's not a stranger, someone you don't know, you're just sitting laid out on a sidewalk. Let's say you were called on to help a family member or a friend navigate uh, an emergency or needing to go to the hospital or the ER, what, how can you help in that kind of a situation? Yeah. So I think there's, 
I mean, you experienced this a little bit not too long ago in your own in your own family of having to prepare someone to go to the emergency room with kind of acute onset symptoms. So, yeah, I think there's kind of there's two two components of that. One is like getting the person to medical care, and the other one is like visiting the person while they're in medical care. So, we'll talk about that first one first. I think that the the things that you can do if you're a family member or like a roommate or someone that you're close with is experiencing some medical symptoms. The things that you can do to help them, one, obviously, if they need just like practical assistance, like you should drive them to the emergency room. You should, if they're not in such acute distress that you need to like, we, we at LA, at the LA County Hospital, we call it the homeboy drop-off. Like you don't need to like just dump them out of the door of your car in front of the ER and say like, hope you can save this person's life and like peel out and get out of there. Hopefully you can drive them and they're not in such dire straits that you can actually accompany them into the emergency room or the hospital where they can seek care. Because these situations, if you're having an emergency and you need to go to the hospital unexpectedly, your ability to reason and collect information, you're under a lot of stress. And so just having someone there is going to reduce anxiety, is going to help them think more clearly. And you're going to assist in that, right? Like, you're going to say, you're going to go to the orientation desk and you're going to say, we need to get to the emergency room. Or you're going to notice those big red signs with white letters on it that says emergency. And you're going to follow those to where you need to go to get to the emergency room. So just being there to provide that just practical assistance is a lot. And that's good. I would say the other things that you can do that I appreciate as the emergency doctor when family members or friends come with patients is if they have like reviewed the story a little bit with the patient beforehand, often that means that we can get to the crucial information a little bit faster. So are you having heart, you know, are you having heart attack symptoms, right? Are you having chest pain or are you having jaw or arm pain or back pain? Like how long has it been going on? How did it start? What were you doing? These things, when, when you have to answer them for the first time, require you to think about it a little bit. But when you answer it for the second or the third time, you kind of already have your script rehearsed in some ways. And so, you know, I'm a I'm an assistant professor and a professor. So I get the chance to go in and interview the patient after a medical student or a resident or both have done the interview. And oftentimes I'll get a little bit better information than those um, students of mine. And part of that is that I've been working for years and I know questions to ask, but part of it is just simply the fact that the patient is answering the question for the third time. And they're giving a little bit better information. So if you can review those symptoms and kind of, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to, to understand what kind of symptoms go together, right? Like if you're having vomiting, are you also having diarrhea or are you vomiting blood? Like those are things that as the patient starts to think about them, will help them to give a better, a better history. And 90% of the diagnosis is in the history. Other things you can do that I would recommend, like um, you're a trusted friend or family member of this patient, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to discuss all of their health information with you. So that would be, I would say it's kind of our responsibility when accompanying family and friends to at least offer to step out of the room when the nurse and the doctor are there or to, you know, to, to give them the chance for that kind of privacy so that would be something that you can just discuss on your way in. Like, hey, you know, we're, you're probably going to be talking to a doctor about some sensitive information. Do you want me there? Or can I, you know, go get a coffee for you while, or, you know, while you're talking to the doctor kind of thing. And so give them the opportunity and you'll, 
you know, you'll know this, you'll know the relationship well. So you'll know if it's the kind of thing where you don't even need to offer, you just need to do it to get out of there, then you'll do that. But, you know, we want to respect patients' privacy. And I would say, don't, don't be shy about accompanying them into things if they want you there. Like if the patient wants you there, then you should be there. There are certain things that like, if they have to put in a urinary catheter, for example, most people are not going to want their roommate to be there for that but some will. Um, and just, you can position yourself so you don't have to, you know, you can be up near their head. And so you don't have to see anything or, or be in the way of anyone. But that's the other thing I would say is like, try, try not to get in the way of the medical care. So yeah, sitting up towards the head of the bed, giving access to the sides of the bed and the, like, obviously a visual a line of sight to the patient. Be aware, like if the nurse comes in and, and checks in, like that's, often a signal that he or she needs to do something with the patient. And so you can offer to, to step out if necessary to try and work with them. And this kind of fits more into like the visiting, but maybe into that initial phase, because most likely if you are well enough to walk into the emergency room, waiting room, you will be well enough to wait a little while to be seen. Most ERs are very busy. Some of that is unfortunate and the effect of the way our financial model works in American medicine. But, you know, if you're in the waiting room for a little while, it's an opportunity um, for some people They get on their phone and they start doing some, some reading online and that can be helpful. It can also be harmful. And I would say like when the doctor comes in, if you're like, you know, I've been doing some research and I'm thinking that this is probably cancer that maybe leave the diagnosings more to the, to the doctors, that's, I mean, that's, I don't want to call it a pet peeve, but to, to call 15 minutes of reading online research when you're in a context with people who've been doing this for a living and have spent, you know, years of their life and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on education, it's, um, that can sometimes come, it can come across hard sometimes to the, the doctor and it can, Sometimes in the worst case scenario, it sets you down on a trail of investigation that really wasn't necessary for the patient. Now I say that, and I want to quickly follow up with like, doctors are not perfect and we are not, you know, we're not impeccable and we don't see everything and we don't necessarily know people the same way. And if so, like a good example of a friend or a family member of a patient really helping out with the medical staff is to say, you know, she's just not acting herself like she's she's stumbling over words or she's her speech doesn't sound about right her face i know it doesn't look that messed up but like normally she smiles a lot bigger and she's not like you know subtle details about how the patient like lives their normal life that we who are meeting her or him for the first time we are not going to pick up on necessarily so you have a lot to add especially for those neurologic things or the like psychiatric functioning of the patient but that would be i guess those are so if i can summarize this like you know get permission to talk about healthcare details with the patient review their symptoms take the time to escort them through and walk with them through the process and then if you have you know good content to add relevant details to to add to the evaluation those would be things where i think you can really be a help to the system and to your friend or your family member. Yeah, very, very practical points, Carlin. I'm really thankful for how 
you walked us through just that whole process from entering an ER to maybe a longer term stay in a hospital. I liked how you talked about just even the stress of the situation and how having somebody there, even if you can just pray with someone, read scripture to them, remind them of truth in the moment can help uh, lower that stress so much. And I also, you you touched on online research and I kind of want to go down that rabbit trail briefly here. <laughs> <laughs> Because that can be a temptation with the internet so accessible and you have some symptoms and, you know, you just put that into Google and find out what exactly do I have? And you can get answers all across the board. So there's a place for it being a useful tool, but it can also be harmful in that people can get stuck doing all their own research and coming up with all different answers. So I don't know, how how should someone who's kind of stuck in just doing all their own online research, would you have anything you would tell them, encourage them with? Yeah, I think, so thank you for bringing that up. And I'm, I'm particularly grateful for you talking about praying and reading scripture or reviewing scripture with your friend or family member while you're on the way and, and getting to the emergency room or getting to the hospital while you're waiting in the waiting room. That is a much better use of your time than frantically searching online. Now, like you said, there's that's the emergency situation where something came up in the last 30 minutes that needs to be addressed quickly and you're, you know, you're like washing your face, putting on closed-toed shoes and clothing that's going to work well in a hospital and you're getting to the hospital, right? The longer term, like I have these stomach issues or I have this, you know, twitch in my arm, what do, you know, what do I need to know about this? The temptation to go online because it's convenient. It works on your time schedule. You don't, you know, most people, I think, who have a primary care doctor, what I've been hearing recently is, you know, my primary care doctor can't see me for six weeks. And that's a long time if you have a new symptom or something that's bothering you to wait to talk to somebody about it. So, yeah, absolutely. There's the temptation and it's not wrong. Like the 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 internet readings that you can do are not always wrong. So there's sometimes helpful. And now with the advent of artificial intelligence for mass consumption, like chat GPT, you can type in a question saying, I'm having chest pain, sweating, and I feel nauseous. What could my symptoms be a sign of? And it'll give you a nice list of things, including a heart attack that would be consistent with those symptoms. So then you have to, and now you have to decide. And that's the the hardest thing about the internet readings that you can do is that they are trying to be accurate. Most, well, in the good faith ones, right? Like you can go to the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, WebMD, eMedicine. These are some sites that are vetted, that are that are trying to do a good job. There are a whole bunch of fly-by-night websites that are, they have their own particular bias or perspective. But they also have to do so in a regulatory environment where they can't, they don't want to be liable for giving you bad advice or for missing something important, right? So like even me, I should probably give you, I'm, I'm going to give a disclaimer in the middle of our talk, like the opinions I express and the viewpoints are only my own and they do not represent necessarily any of the, of my employers or people that I work for and with. And then this is all meant as general medical commentary. This is not like specific medical advice to any individual about what to do. They should do 
they should take care of their health with a physician who knows their story individually, right? So that disclaimer aside, the websites are also like, we can't not tell people that it's possible that they have cancer as a cause of their symptoms, because it is theoretically possible that they have cancer as a cause of their symptoms. So we need to mention that. But when you tell someone that their symptoms could be cancer, you immediately change the equation for that person because you ignite a whole bunch of fear. You activate memories of their aunt or their grandfather or whoever else in their family had cancer. You put a lot of things in play for the patient at really a premature point because they haven't done any of the evaluation or workup that would lead them to know. Now, if you say, I have a terrible looking mole that's grown, it's doubled in size and it's got really irregular borders and it's all kinds of different colors. Yes, that could be melanoma and you should get that seen quickly, not slowly. But it, I, I don't know if I'm coming through here, but there's a need to do some evaluation to know. So you can go down a rabbit trail and you can get lost in doing internet reading about these kind of things. So the, the summary of that would be, I don't want to tell people not to use good resources because I use good resources online all the time, not for, maybe for the same reasons, but there are good resources online. We don't need to be ignorant or avoid them, but I guess the, the rule should be, what is it doing in your heart? And I've told patients this on questions about, you know, vaccinations or questions about chemotherapy or treatments. The, the world has given us the internet. God has given us the church. So, you know, at, at our church, there are, there's at least one physician on the elder board who has committed himself to serving the, the population of our church, the, the congregation in regards to the care of their souls and spirits, but as well as their bodies, right? He, he took a, an oath when he graduated med school, just like I did, to take care of people. So, and that he's just on the elder board. There are, there are several physicians at our church. I think that God, God grants us relationships in which to resolve these things. So even if you can't see your primary care doctor, there's someone in, there's, there's some person, there's some Christian in your life who has more expertise than you on these things. And I would say, talk to the people about it. If you can't get to see your doctor and set up that appointment for six weeks from now with your primary care doctor, even if it seems like you need an answer sooner, because once you have an appointment, it's easier to get like to accelerate that appointment. And you can say, if you have any cancellations, can you call me getting something rolling? And who knows six weeks, sometimes, I mean, in my life, six weeks can go by super fast. And I don't realize like, you know, we're already, we're already entering into the third week of 2024. And I, I mean, like, where did that time go? So, yeah, I would say as much as possible, choose people over the internet and choose Christians who can advise you. I mean, we all know somebody, even if it's, even if it's like a, a nurse from a different church that, you know, that's a great person to ask, are these should I be worried about these symptoms? How fast do I need to see a doctor about them? So, so good. And I really liked how you talked about it's looking at, it's a matter of your heart too. Where's your heart at in all of this? If you are spending an inordinate amount of time on months and months of research for your symptoms that you can't get a diagnosis for and all you have to show for it after 
months and months of internet research is more fear and worry and no solutions or answers. I think if you fall into that category, you need to probably stop the online research, pray, and then try to find, like you said, a person, a medical professional to go to and let their years and years of research and experience guide you. Um, if you're finding that your only fruit from your online research is just anxiety and worry and no solutions. So might be a good idea at that point to not give up. You know, you're not going to just give up and be like, okay, I'm just resigned to these symptoms the rest of my life. But finding a different path that's not going to be such a um, a battleground for um, those other negative fruits in your heart. So, yeah. And I, I just want to say thank you for because you're you're also moving us into there are there are patients and people who struggle for a long time with an undiagnosed illness and that is a really hard place to be in and the way our medical system is set up is not great at dealing with things that don't fit the pattern very easily so you know I'm an emergency medicine doctor we're obviously worried about the the first 15 minutes of everything and how acute and you know critical is your need for resuscitation or diagnostic care. If a listener has one of those situations where they're they're struggling with some chronic symptoms, they've seen a doctor or maybe two and they haven't gotten an answer, my strong advice to those people would be to find a doctor you trust, a primary care doctor you trust, and then stick with the same person for, I mean, at least six months, probably a year or or two would be a better advice. Someone who can, because they're going to get like 15 minutes to see you the first time between, you know, what we, what we did is we would schedule for 30 minutes to see a new patient in an urgent care where I just was working. So I would get 30 minutes, but in that 30 minutes, I need to assess the patient, do the history, the physical exam, and then I need to order labs and studies. And then I need to do all of the charting necessary to care for that patient. I need to do that all in 30 minutes for someone who's maybe been living with something for multiple years. That's just not realistic that we're going to be able to get it done. So if you can follow with the same person, now you start to build up that background and they know, okay, well, the first time I saw this patient, I thought it was X, Y, and Z. So we did these studies and these tests to try and figure that out. And it wasn't X, Y, or Z. So now I'm thinking maybe it's Q, R, and S. So we'll do those studies and we'll do that next. And so those data come back in three months or whatever, and it's not Q, R, or S. So now I'm going to be looking at T, U, and V. And, and you'll make progress with the same person. Whereas if you, if you jump from provider to provider, provider one is going to think it's X, Y, and Z. Provider two is going to think it's W, X, and Y. And provider three is going to think it's you know A, B, C. And you you won't make the same kind of progress towards getting to a diagnosis. So find someone you can trust with whom you can establish that rapport and then just stick with them for a while. Because believe me, doctors don't get through the medical training process by giving up on things easily. So if you entrust yourself to someone, I think that you can usually have confidence that they are going to take your trust seriously and they're going to they're going to advocate for you within the constraints of the time that they're given to look after you. Great, helpful points. And that kind of segues into our next question. So we're kind of, as 
the listeners can tell going through these concentric circles of we started out with a stranger, we're at family members, and now talking about yourself needing medical care. So beyond a primary care doctor, when should someone evaluate or how do they know if they should go to urgent care for symptoms or if they should go to the ER? What types of symptoms would differentiate between those two? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's really a nuanced and complicated answer. I think like even your sister and I have differing opinions of how critical our children's need for medical attention is based on my training and experience. Like if they're not actively bleeding or concussed, I'm I'm relatively content to let them keep playing. But that's all all that to say that your your level of knowledge and training and background is going to influence on this. So general principles, if I can give the principles out, out front, would be you want to match the tempo of your treatment with the tempo of the disease process. So this is a principle that we learned in emergency medicine. If someone, if it takes someone a week to get really ill, often you have a little bit longer time to get them out of their illness. Whereas if someone gets sick acutely in just, you know, like one minute they were normal and the next minute they're not, then you really want to react quickly to that. So that's why, you know, we're all, we're all aware in the media of heart attacks and strokes, or, you know, the ultimate rapidly deteriorating condition is you're shot in the chest, right? You need to get that person care very, very quickly. So what is the tempo of the, of the disease or the injury process? So to the degree that you're able to assess that, I would say, go with that. So if it's a quickly evolving thing, then go to the emergency room. If you think you have more time or it's been a few days that you've been, you know, you started with a runny nose and or stuffy nose and you got a sore throat and now you're having fevers and body aches and you want to see someone, then you're probably okay to go to urgent care. Some practical considerations in all of this. And then I'll give you a list of sort of seminal symptoms that should really just provoke you to go to the ER right away. But some practical considerations, many urgent cares are not open evenings and weekends and holidays. So check online before you go to an urgent care. Emergency rooms are going to always be open 24-7. So the day of the week and the time of day are considerations that would kind of preempt you from going to urgent care. If you suspect, you know, you may not know this and so don't worry about it, but if you suspect that you're going to need blood tests and x-rays or ultrasound or a CT scan or MRI, some imaging, you're probably better off in most cases going to the emergency room. You might have to wait for a while in the waiting room, but you can get all of the things done you need done while in the emergency room, except maybe the MRI. There's very few ERs where they're going to do non-emergent MRIs from the ER. But for the most part, if you suspect that you're going to require some significant additional diagnostic workup, you're probably better off going to the ER. Some urgent cares are really good about this. And there are some called standalone ERs that are not able to do all of those same things. So that would just be uh, something to think about and to put into your, the rest of your considerations. So what are some seminal symptoms, some things that like, no matter what, you probably need to go to the emergency room to deal with. So I'm, I'm thinking about your audience so if you're a young or middle-aged female, if you're having a new, different, terrible headache, so we call it like a thunderclap headache that comes on all at once and it's intense, maybe associated with some 
vision or hearing issues or nausea and throwing up, that would be a go to the ER. We don't, we would want to make sure that you're not having bleeding in your brain. If you have excruciating lower abdominal pain, you know, we think about ovarian torsion. So for women who are cycling, that's one of the, one of the questions, one of the issues. And, you know, time is of the utmost importance. If you're trying to save the ovary, that might be getting twisted up on its blood supply. If you have blood coming out of anywhere, aside from, you know, small cuts and your, your normal cycle, if you're vomiting blood, if you have blood in your stool, if you're coughing up blood, I suppose if you have a small nosebleed, you can handle that at home or at the urgent care. But usually if you have abnormal bleeding from somewhere, you're going to need some labs and you want to be somewhere where they're going to be able to stop the bleeding. Trauma, drowning, you know, obviously there's, there's small trauma and there's big trauma. I would say if there's any notion of reproductive violence, the emergency, every emergency room, at least in California that I know of, has a system set up to assess and work with people because the needs, when you have, you know, gender-based or sex-based violence, there are specific physical needs and psychological needs that go along with that, that most urgent cares are not going to be prepared to offer. And they can connect you to resources, but the urgent, the urgent cares are usually don't have that in-house. And most ERs are going to have that in-house. I would say a suspected intoxication. Toxicology is another place where the emergency room probably does a little bit better than the urgent care at connecting you to resources and, and having everything on hand to be able to deal with that. Because that's usually going to require IV medication. Well, I shouldn't say usually. That's sometimes, at least often enough, going to require IV medication. That usually is not going to be something done at an urgent care. Although urgent cares vary in their ability to do these things. And then lastly, and these are relatively unlikely in your audience's patient population, but any signs or symptoms of a heart attack or stroke. So a new neurologic problem like slurring your speech, a droopy face, numbness, tingling, or weakness in arm or leg on one side of your body, a heart attack. The classic description of a heart attack comes from middle-aged males. So it's not exactly the, the stereotypical presentation in a woman or a younger woman, but any kind of chest pain, feeling your heartbeat funny, like an arrhythmia, fainting, passing out. Those are things that I would say there, you should certainly at least feel justified in going to the emergency room if you pass out or if you're feeling your heartbeat funny. I would say you can also trust your instincts. If you think that it's bad, then go to the emergency room, even if it doesn't fit into my list of things that I just ran through. And if you think that you're doing okay, then you're probably okay. I mean, people have a good sense of their bodies and what's going on, but those are kind of the things that like you maybe didn't realize that are going to require that workup. That's going to probably be better done in the emergency room. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. That's a good list uh, to keep in mind. Many people have had their faith in the healthcare system eroded over the past years or decades so can you give us um, just how to think through what, what does the Bible say about our current medical care model and healthcare system, and just how should we think about the whole enterprise of healthcare delivery in the U.S.? Yeah, that is a big question, and I, um, I wish I had a better answer, like an easy, easily digestible answer. So the U.S. healthcare system, I think that 
I think that there's two strains that I want to highlight out of this. Number one is the philosophy, the current operative philosophy in the world that we live in. In American society, we're in kind of a postmodern, almost post-truth moment where the, the promises of the modern philosophy or the modern era, which was that science and technology are going to continue on unabated and forever progressing us into a better and better state. I think a lot of people found those promises to be inadequate or to the fulfillment of those promises to be inadequate, right? Science and technology have given us nuclear warfare and we have pollution that, you know, gives kids asthma as well as, you know, worries us about the the purity of our drinking water and, you know, like there's lead in, in drinking water or there was lead in drinking water in parts of Michigan because of manufacturing. So like all of this technological and quote unquote scientific advance has led to some pretty terrible outcomes. I think that medicine has fallen into exactly the same trap where, you know, I think that we overpromised and underdelivered for at least a generation and it's led to some loss of confidence. You know, the, the media portrayal of doctors has gone from this sort of like almost perfect, idealized Norman Rockwell type of doctor to Hugh Laurie's portrayal of Dr. House or you know, the scandals of Grey's Anatomy. I mean, these are maybe these are showing my age, but I don't I don't know what the current popular entertainment is about physicians and and the medical enterprise, but you know, certainly General Hospital was only a little bit about providing excellent patient care. And it was, you know, a lot about the drama. So all that to say that our faith has been eroded and we're in kind of a, an anti-institutional moment already, right? Where people are asking questions about is the way that we've been doing things in the past the best way to do them into the future? And that's a valid question and deserves to be answered. But what it means is that the deck is a little bit stacked against the medical establishment from the get-go because of these broader societal trends and the and the overpromise underdeliver right because we haven't cured all cancer we haven't immortalized human beings I, I know there are people seeking to do that through technological means but the truth is that only happens through a spiritual means and we're we're all going to exist forever somewhere so so yeah we I think we failed at fixing everything through through technology and science and research. And so people are like, okay, well then what does what does it have left to offer? And so that's that's been an opportunity I think for people with with really intractable or difficult to to treat diseases or problems to look elsewhere. Right? To to look outside of medicine, which is which is good. I mean, we should be looking outside of medicine to solve the most critical problems in our lives, which is our, our lack of reconciliation to God and our lack of reconciliation to other people, which is what only saving faith in Christ offers. So that's, there's something good in placing less confidence in medicine to fix all the ills of personal individual life, as well as society. So that's, that's a good thing. And it, so we, but I guess what I'm saying is that we need to view medicine in its proper place, which is healthcare is only ever going to be capable in its best possible form of caring for people. And when it's done correctly in pointing people to reconciliation with God. So this is why a Christian healthcare is 
you know, I've obviously committed my life to combining faith and healthcare together and training Christian medical professionals in Burundi and hopefully having an influence on my my students and residents here in the US to, in that direction as well. But healthcare is a way to take care of people. You know, Jesus was involved in healthcare and you can have consummate confidence in him. Even though, like we said, he didn't heal every person who came across his path who needed healing. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing the sick. So seeing, seeing healthcare as a part of a broader equation of caring for people, showing them practical love, and existing in a in God's world is a crucial component to that. That's the one, like the philosophical sort of stream. I think that there's also an economic kind of stream that the way healthcare is set up in the US is really complicated. It's this complicated mishmash of public and private funding of self-pay and insurance and competing interests. And then there's privatization of some of that thing where there are groups seeking to make a profit on healthcare involved in that, the whole provision model in America. So there's just a lot of competing interests and it's, it's just messy, right? Just like everything else is in economics, it's just messy. So to have some knowledge of that, right? That like I, I was talking about the urgent care scheduling 30 minutes for a new patient you know, for an established patient, it's like 15 minutes. So you got, you know, you got 15 or maybe 20 minutes to see the patient perform all the testing necessary, write up the chart, follow up on the results, get them the medications and treatments that they need. Like the reason why it is like that is because the economics don't support it to go any slower. So it has to be moving that fast in order to, to stay afloat. And that's unfortunate. On the flip side, there are economic incentives for other things, right? Everyone's trying to sell you something. The advertisements that you're seeing in your social media feed for this or that dieting and exercise program or these supplements or whatever, like it's all commercial at a certain level because that's how we've organized. That's how we've organized our society or that's where we give our, our attention at least. So it's a an opportunity. So obviously this can so mistrust in everything. And then you're stuck, right? Because if you if you never trust anybody, then you're just on an island by yourself. So how do you get out of that? And I'm gonna come back to that statement I made earlier that you know, man gave us the internet, man gave us the free market, but God gave us the church. So as much as you're able, connect to people in your church setting who care about you. And are going to look after you and are going to do so in a manner consistent with your best interest. And this is like, I'm telling you to advocate for yourself. I'm also telling you to be this for other people, right? I'm sure that there are some nurses and probably some physicians listening to your podcast. So for those of you out there, like make yourselves available to serve your brothers and sisters in the church to help in this regard. And if they know you as a provider, they can trust you. I mean, it, you can't trust the system but you can trust people within a system to the degree that they're trustworthy and so and that you know them. So I want your your listeners who can be to be an example and to be a resource. But I want the listeners who are not 
in medicine or have any special healthcare expertise to know that the Christian believers, like your brothers and sisters in Christ, are your best resource for these things. And there are a lot of believers in healthcare. It is concentrated for people who look after each other and who are motivated by love and compassion. So it ends up being enriched for believers, even if the popular portrayal is a bunch of, you know, immoral, self-absorbed people. We're all sinners, but there are a lot of saints in medicine too. So I would say pick those people to seek out and let them guide you in the rest of the system. That's helpful. Would you say that there's any place for being careful of taking advantage of someone's training and expertise outside of paying them for their services, you know, just presuming that, oh, we go to the same church, so I don't have to actually go to your clinic. I'm just expected expecting help outside of that. What should we keep in mind there? Yeah, I would say um, your audience is intelligent enough to know when they're trying to replace going to a clinic and when they're just trying to get advice on where to go or when to go. So if you're, you know, if, if the result you're seeking is a prescription or a, you know, a diagnosis, please give that provider the opportunity to do that rightly. Right. So if you're saying, you know, I have these palpitations and I'm feeling my heartbeat funny, or I have this abdominal pain, the provider needs to at minimum push on your belly or listen to your heart. So that's not usually the kind of thing that, oh, you know, I just happen to have my stethoscope and in the middle of church, I'm going to stop and get a quiet room so I can listen to your heart. Like that's probably not going to happen. So be be kind, be gentle and and gracious with your providers by giving them the opportunity to do it rightly. But, you know, and and certainly you can abuse this um, access. I have found, I think I would rather encourage people to, to ask. And the providers can kind of direct them to say like, hey, I should probably see you in clinic. Or could you make an appointment and come in to see me on this question? Let the provider kind of guide that a little bit. And if you're a provider, don't be afraid to say like, hey, I really need to do an EKG to to figure that out. So do you want to come in to the clinic or can I refer you to my friend who actually has a primary care clinic? Because, you know, if you go to talk to a pathologist or a radiologist about your palpitations, they're probably not going to have a clinic where they can do those things for you. So they'll need to refer you to somebody else. So not, I mean, and and people like, sometimes people ask me like my oncologist recommended this chemotherapy regimen for my stage four, you know, pancreatic cancer. What do you think? And I'm like, I think I'm an emergency medicine doctor and you should definitely listen to your oncologist because they specialize in that stuff. And I only specialize in the complications of chemotherapy when it goes wrong, you know, respect as well. The, the, and the provider will tell you that. I think that I, that's what I tell people. It's like, I'm not the, I'm not the guy for your question on the, the particular chemotherapy regimen that you're going to be prescribed. So, so I would say probably more people are afraid to ask than they need to be. There are a few people who are definite abusers. I've, I've encountered those folks and that's on me to, to know how to redirect them and help them to do it in the right way. So you've worked not only in the U.S. healthcare system, but you've also worked in Burundi and other nations. So what can we learn from the healthcare delivery and providers of other cultures, other nations? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because the U.S. model is kind of a mishmash of everything. And so in France, right, that's uh, socialized medicine, right? Single payer to the greatest degree that will take care of everything. 
So they they decide what kind of care they're going to offer all their citizens. And then if you want something other than that, then you have to pay out of pocket. But they cover a lot of different things and they pay high taxes to get that. In Burundi, it's almost entirely private pay, right? Unless you're a child under five or a pregnant woman, you are going to have to pay cash for whatever care you receive. So it's totally different economic models in all those places. All of them are relatively effective at getting people the care that they need within the resources that they have. So obviously France's GDP per capita is something like 40 times that of Burundi. So they get a lot more care, but even in Burundi, I would, and and so I guess the thing that I would say the lessons learned in Burundi, one thing I really like about how things work in Burundi is that every patient admitted to the hospital comes with another person there in French. It's called the guard malad, like the, the guardian of the sick person. And their role is to do a lot of the basic nursing care. So they make sure that they have food to eat um, in accordance with the doctor's orders. They make sure that they can toilet. So it's it's like every patient has a permanent live-in visitor with them. And, you know, visitors, the impact of visitors is really interesting, right? They help accelerate recovery. They reduce length of stay. Visitors can reduce, you know, for, there are studies that show that in the ICU, they reduce patient anxiety and the uh, incidence of delirium. There was a post, I, I remember seeing a study after COVID, you know, we stopped visitors from coming to the hospital. So there was a post-op, like a surgery study that showed that once the policy went into place because of COVID, that they couldn't have visitors anymore, patient satisfaction went down. They stopped walking as much after surgery. So like a really like palpable impact on patient care. And I think that we're so committed to, you know, avoiding contamination or bringing infections around the hospital or getting infected in the hospital. And we're so worried about getting in the way of things and, and bothering the nurses or whatnot, complicating the situation that sometimes we stay away, right? Like sometimes we, you know, patient privacy, like we want to let them heal on their own. And there's certainly some patients for whom they just would rather be alone and and left to rest in their hospital. But in Burundi, that autonomy bias is just not there. They are so communal or so community oriented. They're so relationally rich that it's unthinkable that someone would go to the hospital without having another person with them there in the hospital. And I really like that model. I think that's I think that's beautiful. Obviously, we've built the hospital such that the patients can have their guard malad with them at all times. And so that's a societal expectation. But I think that that social component of healing is much better understood in Burundi, kind of kind of by default, you know, by by dint of their it's almost it's almost a byproduct of their poverty in material resources that that they are rich in relational resources. So that's one thing I would I would love to encourage listeners, something, a lesson I can bring back from Burundi to the U.S. is that patients need friends. They need friends and, and family members. They need visitors to the greatest degree that you're able to and without obviously interrupting the, the provision of care in other ways is just to visit people. Bring balloons. You know, we, we prefer things that don't have strong scents or that people could be allergic to. So keep, you know, don't wear your, your most pungent of perfumes and bring balloons or a succulent instead of flowers and 
you know, just warm because we keep hospitals cold due to um, concern for spreading infection. But visit, make it, it's going to be cold in the hospital and sterile. So make it warm with your presence and yeah, work together. I think that's, I, I really do appreciate that about the, the Burundian mindset is that we go through all of life together. And so don't hesitate. Don't hesitate to be there and be that positive impact on someone's hospitalization. If they need help with the finances, like, I don't know. I, I just feel like we are so individualistic in the U.S. that we could really use a, a boost of the community orientation that Burundi has to offer. So that's one thing I really love about Burundi. And they do. They all help each other. We're all part of the same family at the end of the day. Reminds me of an episode we did a few back on bearing one another's burdens and how that's as believers, that's what we do. We help carry the load by being a, a support and an encouragement. And that looks different for different seasons um, and situations. But yeah, if someone's in the hospital, what a special way to care for them, to give of your time and your attention and your love. And I think it's really neat. Like you talked about Burundi having that family member with them. And just makes me think of that person getting exceptional care when it's coming from someone who doesn't know them, but someone who has their best interests at heart. So that's really special that they they have that model. Yeah, there's there's some studies in the states that say that when I mean this is this may be an area for more research, but some studies that show that when the doctors and nurses are being observed, like I, I think I remember seeing one where the hand washing like doctors washing their hands before they evaluate the patient. If there's a visitor in the room, it like substantially increases the likelihood that the doctor is going to wash his hands or her hands. So I think that's just kind of a funny little caveat and, you know, poking fun at my own profession a little bit for not always 100% of the time doing hand hygiene. <laughs> yeah. But, the account, the accountability. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, they call it the Hawthorne effect, right? Like you do better when you're being observed doing your job. But yeah, you're absolutely right. What you said that joy shared is joy multiplied and grief shared is grief divided. So having someone to go through the hard time of the hospital with you, or, you know, some people go to the hospital because they're having a baby and that's a totally joyous, wonderful thing. So, you know, being, being there and doing it in community, I think there's, I, I think that there's a, there's a, a sense, a longing for that in Americans. I think social media has taught us that it's not enough to connect online to people that we need real life connection. And COVID certainly the, the social distancing was, was terrible and, and was costly in a lot of ways, but hopefully at least it showed us that, you know, what, what's the opposite of social distancing? Social approaching is crucial for our overall well-being because God made us as one integral creature and we are to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. And that means holistically. Well, Carlin, so many helpful, practical, heart-level wisdom that you offered. And I'm just going to be excited to hear how it's applied and useful to the listeners. And for those who want to learn more about your uh, nonprofit, where you're seeking to raise funds to go towards African medical doctors so that they can stay and take care of their own people best after you and other doctors pull out so that that whole system doesn't fall by the wayside. If they want to 
donate to that or learn more about that. I'll link your site in the show notes. And then even if people have questions to you for medical missions or other questions, I'll put your email there so that they can contact you, reach out to you, and I'm sure um, you'd be able to offer some guidance there. But thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with me and the listeners. And yeah, just so grateful for your time. Happy to be here, Christy. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to address your folks. And I pray that you can all be smiling at the future more and more as time goes on and as you listen to podcasts and go out there and love your neighbors.